Chase, you got a copy, Chase. Yeah, go ahead. Eleven minutes gone. I'll be over in a minute. Time, temperature, and concentration. Read the work order. Safety glasses. You're not done with that yet? Hey, put on some gloves. Can you please just follow the process? Make sure you put your respirator away. Solvent rags go over the side of the trash can. Where's your wet film gauge? Make sure you're putting tags back on the parts. Did you milk check that? Put your tools away. This Chase. Welcome to KaiserCast episode six. Today we're going to interview Bill Townsend to go along with our theme corrosion protection. Um, or just corrosion, I should say, not corrosion protection. But first, we'll get to a little bit of open discussion. This week is fun. Chloe is actually in Lincoln for a couple of weeks. Normally, she works out of Colorado um, remotely, so it's been really great having her around. We're actually recording the podcast out of the same room, which we thought was going to be easier, but it seems to be a little bit harder with the mics that we have. We got a lot of echoing going back and forth, uh, but hopefully we can get that chopped out in the post-production. Chloe, what's your favorite part about being back in Lincoln as far as your work at Kaiser? Is there anything different, or do you actually not like being back? You would prefer to work remotely. I'm going to start by saying uh, I do like being here very much. I like the the boots on the ground. There's just more of an energy. You know, I might not get as much done in a day as I would if I were by myself in my apartment in my office. Um but I'm so much more in tune with everything that's going on. And um, we've had a number of projects this week, like we did a, a safety audit and um, just a few different things that really kind of got me in the thick of the action. Um, and it feels really good after a full year of being tremendously isolated. <laughs> so it's been good to be home. Yeah, it's been fun having Chloe here in Lincoln. And like she said, we've been getting a lot of stuff done, stuff that we don't normally get to because she's not physically here, but like also it's almost I like it that that she works from out most of the time, and then when she comes to Lincoln, it makes me kind of prepare ahead of time. Uh, makes me actually get some things done that I always put on the back burner because like, oh, that can wait, oh, that can wait. But then if I know when when she's coming and we're gonna work on a few projects, then I actually have to take the time to to prepare and get things done. So that's worked really really well. Um, I didn't expect that to be a dynamic of having somebody that worked remotely. But it came on site partially. Um, but it, for anybody out there that's considering having someone work remotely, it's actually a, an interesting benefit. And like, since Chloe isn't in the thick of things all the time, she sees it through kind of a different perspective when she's back. So she can kind of – stuff that I – like for the safety audit, for example, stuff that I would just kind of normally gloss over because I'm just so used to seeing it. She'll be like, well, what about that? What about that? I'm like, oh, that's a good point because she's, you know, seeing it for the first time. Yeah, I think anytime you can mix up the routine, um, it's good for productivity. You know, you don't get in these patterns that you're always in. You don't look gloss over things that you would normally gloss over. Um, I think it's been good for both of us. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I was gonna. We're gonna do your social media tip of the day like we normally do. Uh, you were saying that you weren't sure if you had one, but maybe aside from that, what's your like? You really like. I think you like being back and being able to record some content yourself, right? That has been my favorite part of being home. Um, just following Jace around with a camera all day. I'm sure the guys in the shop think I'm an idiot for doing that. Um, but it's been such a, it's been such a an opportunity to get all kinds of content. I've got time lapses. I've got pictures. I've got short little interviews. You know, things come up during the day that you might not remember to tell me about when we talk once a week. Um, but I'm there, so I catch them. Um, there were fish eyes the other day in the paint booth that I, you know, you guys were talking about that and I was there with my camera. It was, it was great. If you have the opportunity to have someone on your team, follow you around with a camera for a day, um, you can get just a ton of content for social media. And the guys don't think that you're weird following me around. They mostly give me a hard time cause they're like, Oh, when the camera's here, then you're actually going to be out on the shop floor. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not a coincidence that you were in the powder booth this week? It was actually a coincidence. We did. That wasn't just me showing off for the camera being there. We have gotten really busy. We had a, some big uh, move-ins from one of our biggest customers. A lot of due dates got moved in, and it just seemed like the best way to, to get things pushed through was for me to jump in the spray booth and help spraying a little bit um, just so that way we could keep enough hands on the floor and luckily Chloe was there to capture that. That was good. If she wouldn't have been, if it wouldn't have timed out, uh, it timed out perfectly. It couldn't have been any better. Cause that was great that she could get some content of me in there. And, um, and then of course, like the guys are, are going to give me a hard time. So that's, that's good too. So, um, as far as what I fixed this week, um, I was, I was more or less preparing just like a lot of stuff to, to go through our safety audit. And then we always have some stuff in the wash bay that we have to fix. I've actually had Chauncey, our, our production manager across all our shops, been teaching him how to do the small repairs. And he's been doing a pretty good job with that. So I'm doing less and less of that. Um, I'm trying to think. There was something that I was doing. I, I was more or less preparing parts this week we had a few leaks on the wash bay um one thing that came up that was more like a problem that we had to troubleshoot we were starting a big order and it was a green and so we were pulling kind of a dark green we pulled out our normal green hoses we usually spray a lot of um, like ag green through our green hoses so it's pretty well caked inside there even if you run earplugs through it and we noticed that we were getting little specks of ag green and this darker green. And so pretty quickly on the fly, we decided that, first of all, we had the, the sprayers change their suits to just like a brand new suit to make sure it wasn't coming off their suit. And then we had enough brand new powder hose in stock that we just cut new hoses so that way we wouldn't have any of the old powder coming out of the inside of the hose and, and mixing in with, with the powder we were spraying that day. And that seemed to fix the problem. Um, it wasn't a terrible contamination issue, but it, but it was a little bit. So make, make sure that your maintenance in your hoses, that could be one thing. And then, um, we were, I didn't get a chance to fix it yet, but one of our pressure washers having a problem with the heat, it's not working quite right. So we think it was a temperature 
sender or or the thermocouple. So we got some ordered in, and I haven't had a chance to put them on yet. It was it's actually our spare washer, so it's it's not the end of the world. Um, but we noticed it when we were just doing some regular maintenance on it that it wasn't heating up. So maybe at the next podcast I'll tell you how that goes. That's not a part that I normally work on or fix so that's going to probably be some trial and error hopefully it goes in relatively easily but it's not something i've ever done before and as most people know in the powder coating industry there's not really instruction manuals on that so that's just going to be trial by error probably for the contamination issue did you catch it before it cured we uh we had one cart no, we had two carts cured out and it wasn't terrible. Like we probably could have ran the entire run and and it wouldn't have been an issue. And it probably would have got better as we went. As you continue to use the the color that you're using, it pretty much clears out the old stuff. It wasn't bad, but we're really, really particular. We were looking at it really close up with flashlights. And um, I noticed it because I was just over there and I'm usually extra picky, even pickier than our guys normally doing QC. So I just thought to myself, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to see if anybody else brings it to my attention and ask me. And then the guy that normally QC is our client, our floor manager in powder. He's like, do you notice just a little bit of contamination just every once in a while? And when he brought that up to me, then I was like, okay, we need to adjust something. It was just, it was a few, it might've been a speck every couple feet so like that would even still pass class A typically, depending on how stringent the the spec is. But anytime that we're looking something over, if we're seeing specs and then consistently, you know, every couple feet and like another spec, we always want to try to make it perfect. So if you catch it before curing, you just brush it off and spray over it. Yeah, but so you wouldn't see this before it cured because it's such a so like we'll have to post a picture of of this sometime it won't be of the actual pro this color but it comes up in other colors so like the the easiest one is probably going to be like a white on a black or or a, or a white on a red if it's just if you're getting a little bit of con powder contamination whether it's actually in the box of your powder or it's coming off of somebody's spray hood or spray mask, or if it's coming out of the inside of your hose, you're just going to see like little tiny dots, really, really tiny, like the size of a pinhead, because it's just like one powder grain of white in the red that you're spraying. Um, so you, you have to get right up to it. If you're an arm's length away without a flashlight, you're not going to see it. You're going to need a really high power flashlight and be probably six to 12 inches away and then looking at it really, really close. And then you'll probably see specs every once in a while in, and you're pretty much all in a job shop setup. Unless you're super, super clean, you're probably going to get specs of anything uh, pretty regularly. But we just noticed like consistently like, Oh, there's a little tiny green speck, like bright green. Cause ag green is really bright. And then a couple feet down another one, couple feet down another one and so when we were seeing that then we want we wanted to see if we could get rid of it um so you won't this is just that little speck you usually don't see it until it, it cures out so then if you really want to fix those specks if they're bad and there's huge clusters then you have to so then you sand it and recode it once you get the problem figured out 
Um, but there really is no way to like look at it closely before it cures. So I guess if, if you're in the middle of a process or in the middle of a production run and, and you, you're having terrible contamination issues, like you look at your, your first cart that comes out of the oven, we're, I'm talking job shops, so we're on a cart basis, not on any, on a line. So we might be a little more beneficial to catching things before a lot goes wrong. But if you see huge clusters and you're like, this is absolute reject if you have more parts ready to go in the oven chances are they have the same issue so you could just blow the powder off at that point and just assume that it's going to be bad since the first car came out bad um but most of the time you have to wait till you actually see it cure out that makes sense and of course this happens on your busiest week of the season so far yeah but this kind of i mean these problems happen all the time and then um I've just gotten to the, or I'm realistic about it now, I guess. It's like if you're running more parts through, you're working more hours, you have more people over in the shop, more parts are going out the door, just like statistically you're going to have more problems, right? Um, even if it's the same per percentage that you always have, you're just going to have more now because if you're doing more work, the, the percentage is the same, you're going to have more problems. So um, I used to get really frustrated with that and maybe look to blame somebody in the shop for not catching it or how did that get by you but now it's i just don't worry about that i just react and say okay that's an issue you know do we need to fix this one or is that one okay we're gonna let this one spec go and then we just want to make sure that we fix it for the rest um i just try to go right into problem solving mode right away because you don't really have time it's it's just a waste of time to be mad especially when you're really busy so it's easier just to problem solve and move on that makes sense. Well, I, for one, am super excited to meet Bill for the first time. I've heard so much about him all these years. Yeah, he's been a great help to us. We've known him ever since we started Powder Coating. I'm really not quite sure how we we got hooked up with him. It might have just been the fact that he knew that we were a new Powder Coating company started, and so he stopped by just to see what we were doing and kind of looked at what we had. And, and uh we were pretty bare bones at the beginning and and didn't have a lot of definitely didn't have a lot of knowledge but we didn't, might have not had all the equipment that we needed but he was able to help us kind of make it work um as we were first getting started you obviously don't need something that's like state of the art if you're just doing a few pieces of of lawn furniture and, and wheels when you're getting going and you might not have the budget for it but over time he he helped us as we grew he kind of with us and, and helped give us more and more information as we needed it. So our guest today on KazerCast episode six is Bill Townsend. I know Bill because he's helped us with our pretreatment throughout the years. Um, he's more of just a consultant now. He's retired from the chemical industry, but we thought we would bring him on. We have uh, a theme coming up on social media based on corrosion, and Bill has a lot of experience in that. So we're going to ask him a few questions today. How are you doing today, Bill? Good afternoon, Jace. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a blessing. Thank you. I'm doing great. So I guess uh, Chloe's going to ask you a few questions, but do you remember how uh, we first met and we started working together? I don't quite remember uh, because I wasn't at the powder coating facility right when it started. I don't know if Jay reached out to you or you just knew about us, but ever since that we got to know each other i pretty much learned everything 
about treat pre-treatment from you and i think that's why kaiser has been so successful do you remember how we came across each other or is it just by chance well i remember in the very beginning you had decided to set up a powder coating operation in addition to the other operations that you and and the organization were involved in and we came in and, and basically we began with basically an audit saying okay what do you want to do what do you want to achieve how does you know what do you see and what do you envision what do you think you're going to do as far as parts sizes materials those types of things and once we started looking at those things then we started talking about pluses and minuses of of going different ways and different options both in terms of selection of equipment but also in terms of chemistries okay uh, I'm going to turn it over to Chloe now. She's going to ask you some questions, and I'll jump in wherever I see fit. And I'll kind of try to tie it back to some of the stuff that we do at Kaiser, so some of our listeners can understand. But Bill gets really tactical really quick, um, so this will be really good for the technical listeners. I really like talking to Bill because I always learn something when I'm talking to him. But we'll turn it over to you, Chloe. So before we jump into talking about corrosion, um, I did kind of want to go back. You shared a story with me about how you started in the chemical industry. Do you want to revisit that? Yes. Good afternoon, Miss Chloe. Um, it, it's kind of a funny story, and I don't know if I've even shared it with too many people. So, so it, it's kind of exciting. But, but my gratitude and thanks go out to the uh, the Gruss family, both Fremont Senior Gruss as well as his three sons. Mark, Brad, and Fremont Jr. out of Shakopee, Minnesota. And uh, when I was in college, I was um, working my way through college and I was going to school down at Gustavus, which is in St. Peter, Minnesota, but I was living up in Excelsior, Minnesota on Lake Minnetonka so that I could work at the Yacht Club because that's where there was money to be made and there wasn't money to be made really down in St. Peter. So I would travel back and forth to school and every Sunday afternoon, I would see Brad Gruss loading up his his uh, his little Ford, and he would load it up and take off. And every Friday night or Saturday morning, he'd come back, and and uh, and I would saw what a good hard worker he was, and and then I was admiring that also. But also then during the weekends, I was working at the yacht club, and I got to meet Brad, and uh, um, he would see me working, and he would see me going to school and back and forth, and. And so it was just kind of a, a common kinship. And he said, hey, after you get done with school, you know, you come back and you talk with me or whatever. And I said, oh, okay, great. You know, that sounds great. You know, how it, how it is when you're a college kid, everything, you know, is, is wonderful. And uh, um, so I, I did finish with college and, and actually uh, ended up with an international economics and international business. Nothing to do with chemistry, but but uh, um, did a few things and helped my family and some businesses and those types of things, but uh, ended up calling Brad and he said, uh, well, he said, I hope you're calling for a job. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And he said, okay, meet me at 8 a.m. in my office with a resume. Can you do that? I said, I think I can do that. And so we did. And uh, I tell you what, Miss Chloe, the biggest motivation to learning chemistry or learning any type of job is having your first child. And uh, that, 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 was, that was my biggest motivation. I had to learn and I had to learn quickly. And, uh, and, and so that's how I really started learning chemistry. And to be honest, in high school, I hated chemistry because it didn't make sense. You know, okay, so I lose an electron here and I gain one there and memorize this one has four what, you know, 
it didn't make sense. But once I started getting in the plants and the manufacturing and seeing the differences of what a pH can do or what a, a change in concentration or just a change of maybe five degrees in temperature can do, then chemistry started becoming exciting. And, and then it was, uh, you know, um, probably the fact that it was applicable to real life made it more exciting to me. Wow. And so here we are, how many years later, and you are functionally a chemist. Well, I don't No, no, no. The chemists are the smart guys with the white coats. I'm a sludge sucker. That's <laughs> what I am. One of my dearest friends calls me a sludge sucker and has for years. And it's really true. But that's where you learn. And, um, and so no, I, I would never say I'm a chemist. But what I have seen a lot of different things over the years, and I've encountered a lot of problems that the guys in the white coats and, you know, God bless them because they really do know what they're doing from a chemistry standpoint, but they've helped me and assisted, but uh, I've seen it more kind of, you know, in the trenches and, and problem solving kind of stuff probably would be, be better put the, the sludge sucker, you know, go ahead. That's great. It's the best nickname I've heard in a while. So I know today we really wanted to focus on corrosion. And as you know, we're a powder coating operation. So um, I think we, we kind of want to address it from the perspective of the finishing industry. Um, and I know, I mean, I'm sure you could talk about this for hours. So I, I wanted to ask you, where do we start? Um, what do powder coaters need to know about corrosion? Okay. I think if we... If we start kind of with a basic, I got to get my cheater glasses on, sorry, um, <laughs> I'm getting old. Uh, no, 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 I'm about 23 in my brain, that, that helps. But uh, <laughs> if we go to the true definition of corrosion, it'll say something like corrosion is a natural process that converts a refined metal, that refined is an important word, into a more chemically stable form, such as an oxide, a hydroxide, or a sulfide. It is a gradual destruction of materials by chemical and or electrochemical reaction with their environment. So yeah, that's that's the guys in the white suits or the white coats that, that know all those good words. Now, to us down on the floor, basically it was what it really means is it wants to go back to its natural state. So when we say the word refined metal, Okay, we've taken the ore out of there. We've taken the taconite. We've taken whatever the base metals are that have come together to make this refined metals. And ultimately, it wants to go back to its original state. That's through corrosion, oxidation, those types of things. But rust, basically, rust. That's the best word is rust. But basically, it's rusting away to go back down into the ground and into the earth and start all over again, go back where it's supposed to be kind of thing. So that's what we're seeing when we see corrosion. Now, all of that is a base of our framework or our scaffolding to say, okay, so now as a powder coater, what is important to me? When I look at it, I can break it down. There's a hundred different things, but I can break it down into three basic categories. Um, whether I'm a job shop custom coater, um, I've got production pieces every single day. It, it, it all is somewhat applicable. It's basically, you've got, incoming metals that are corroded or rusty so we got rusty parts coming in or we've got in process corrosion or the parts are getting 
in our shop somehow in between operations during storage or whatever before they're painted before they go to the next operation etc so that would be number two again in process corrosion or in process rust and then number three i got rust coming on the parts coming out of my washer um, so that would be the third area of concern is hey i've got parts they're coming out of my washer they're rusty what's going on what do i do before i get it painted and, and how do i correct the situation so those would be the three areas of, of concern that a, of any type of 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 a, of a coating shop be it liquid powder um you know custom or production shop would be would be looking at great so let's do you mind let's just uh break each one down can we start with the incoming metals um what do you do with incoming metals that are corroded okay um that i would take also i guess miss Cole would break it down into a couple different categories also is what it, type of metal is it first of all is is it a is a hot rolled piece is it a hot rolled pickled and oiled or is it or is it uh you know um a, a cold rolled and and i say that because you can have some rust coming in on a cold rolled sheet that is just surface metal and then you can treat it and address it in one certain fashion the other is coming in on let's say scaly material where the 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 actually the the heat scale from the from the process is actually kind of breaking away from itself and then it rusts down underneath of there so um but in any three of those situations you basically got two different types of scenarios to remove that rice because most likely you don't want those parts to continue into the assembly process and or if it's going directly into your washer or or spray wand or whatever have you um pre-treatment process to go into powder coating you don't want you know to coat over that rust so what's our best way to remove that um the the two manners that are, are normally used to remove that are one chemically removal with some type of uh, either a highly caustic or a highly acid um, to remove the rust or um, a mechanical type of remo removal you know a uh, bead blast rotoblast sandblast um, you know da grinder those types of things um, those would be your two options but for good quality powder coating um, whether it's on cold rolled hot rolled um, in in any case we would need to remove those rust materials prior to either going into the washer or actual powder coating what would happen theoretically if we didn't remove that rust what happens if you just powder coat directly over it very good question very good question both in terms of of uh liquid coat as well as powder coat the coatings do breathe and as moisture goes through the um through the 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 coating in this case we're talking about powder coating as the moisture goes through the powder coating it goes down and it will dehydrate those sites that are underneath of those ferrous sites basically the rust that's underneath there that will start to rehydrate and if you think of a sponge down underneath the uh, the uh, powder coat you may have good adhesion at the initial it's called dry film adhesion well, it's first coming out of the oven in your test but once you get moisture down underneath that powder coat and it hits those rusty areas it will reactivate and rehydrate and start to lift and bubble up just like a sponge 
would react to water, and then that starts a lift and premature bring up the paint. Um, the other case, I guess, would be the other scenario would be if it was a hot rolled material, and then the scale actually started breaking away from itself. The initial thought was, oh, we don't have adhesion on the on the part. Well, you may have adhesion on the part, but actually the part is breaking away from itself. And a quick way to check on that one is if, if you check and you take a magnet and you see if you can pick up the piece of powder coat that, that broke off on the backside. And if, if Paris there, it'll stick to the magnet, then the scale is breaking away from itself. But again, it's all caused by you know, the corrosion, the underlying underneath, that's cutting underneath the scale. Is that corrosion always going to be visible? Or is it better just to blast regardless, just in case it's there? I, I well, I think any type of a removal of corrosion, honestly, I think the best is some type of mechanical um, removal. Okay. Um, always get down to base metal. Um, yes, there's several different chemical you know, processes that, that we use in certain times, it is better than mechanical, but overall I'd say mechanical is always best, yes. Okay. Let's talk about in-process corrosion. What causes it and what do you do about it? Okay, great. Um, in-process corrosion basically can occur in several different forms. Um, basically, um, it is when your parts are corroding or rusting in your facility or in storage before they get powder coated and are in process. So it can occur after a, um, um, an operation like a turning or a machining or boring or a tapping operation. Um, it could also just be sitting in a box waiting to go to assembly before it gets to the washer, before it gets powder coated. Um, but in any case, we look at these parts and we say, okay, we have an issue here, it's rusting. And basically from there, we go again with three different options. Basically, we just have these parts that are rusting, whether they're coming from a, an upstream operation or whether they're just sitting in parts and storage waiting to go to an operation. If we're looking just short-term indoor storage, well, then we would look at what's called a water-soluble rust preventative or RP. And that basically is, is usually some type of, of as it says, water-soluble, um, possibly synthetic. There's lots of different types of formulations that they can use, but basically it's perhaps 10 or 20% of the chemistry and 80 or 90% of your water. And it would be for mixed together. And then the parts that could be sprayed or dipped or however applied, depending on the parts. Um, and then that would be for shorter term storage, perhaps, let's say 30 to 40 days, 45 days. Again, weather conditions, of course, make a big difference. If you say, okay, what's the next level of protection? Then you would look at what's called a water emulsifiable, which is basically an oil product um, that is emulsified in solution with other chemistries or a portion of it is oil. Um, you know, it could be anywhere 2%, 20% oil. Um, but anyway, the, the oils are emulsified in solution and that generally, again, is for indoor storage, perhaps, let's say, um, you know, 45 to 65, maybe 90 days, depending on weather conditions. Now, if you're looking for longer term indoor storage, then your best bet is to look at what's called a water displacing. And you're at, you can actually take the parts and dip them into this 
in any water that's on the parts in any caverns or, or uh, nooks or crannies, it actually will take and displace the water off of the part, put it down at the bottom of the tank, and then the part will dry. Um, and then depending on the formulation, how much of a tacky film will it leave greater or lesser? Um, you can actually design that if you want more of a tacky film or more of a like a vanishing oil almost that where you don't see any film, but it still gives you protection. Um, but you look at where are the parts coming, where is the issue and the problem, and where are they going, and what types of, of application can we do, and how long of um, storage do we need. So what if we had blasted some parts and then we're waiting to go into pretreatment and it's Nebraska summer, it's really humid. And so w usually after we blast parts and they're just raw, essentially down to near white metal, they can rust pretty quickly in the humidity. But I'm always afraid to apply any kind of rust preventative to it since we're going to be mostly water in that concentration. I'm worried that then it's just going to, right when I spray something on there, it's going to flash rust it regardless. And so then it's actually making it worse. What are your thoughts on that? Good, good question. Um, how long are these parts going to sit, Jace, before we um, are going to powder coat them? And again, I understand it's humid Nebraska, nice warm summer. Like two to five days, let's say. So pretty short term. Okay. So there, um, I guess then I would begin with a, a water soluble at perhaps like about a 20% of the chemical and 80% water. And, and run some test parts, and if that gives you the storage. Um, if not, you could go up to the water emulsifiable, and those are still you know, good and cleanable and rinsable once you're in a wash bay. But uh, I always like to start out you know, um, at the easiest and then work your way up. So you wouldn't be concerned with, right when you put that um, RP on that has quite a bit of water in it, that we would blast rust the blasted or you think that right it's uh the way it's designed it's not it won't let it rust at all well if if you were worried about the the surface being extremely active and this would be the i guess the the, the third part of the test process um your, your best bet although you're not looking for the longer term storage but in that case scenario you could test and try the water displacing because your actual part, even though you're down to white bare metal and it's called the, 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 the surface is very active at that point, once the air or the oxygen gets to that metal, that's when it's going to want to really get, um, you know, starting to get rusty really fast. So in, in that case, perhaps if it's coming right off of there and it's wet, you could take and dip it into the water displacing. The water is going to have down to the bottom of the tank. And then that part will be completely free of that water and completely sealed. Um, okay, so basically we want to get the RP on there and then get it dry before, or get any of the water off of it before oxygen has a chance to get to the substrate. Exactly, but that would still be the. I mean, that would be the the extreme case. Whereas perhaps you don't need to go. Perhaps you use a water emulsifiable. Um, with a real good strong RP package built into it, that those parts still would be fine, especially if you're only going, you know, seven days or a week or something like that. Um, 
and and you know i always say pre-test everything because um you don't really know until you test it right okay that makes sense i think uh we we might try that on some parts every once in a while it's usually in the summer is when we have issues uh if they if we blast something thinking that we're going to pre-treat and powder coat it right away but then the schedule gets moved around and it might sit over you know it might be blasted on like a thursday that we were going to work on it in the powder coating shop on Friday, and then it ends up sitting all weekend. Sometimes we see some rust coming back, but we'll try that. The water displacing, but but yet I try not to go, you know, all the way right into fourth gear when you get a one, two, three, you know, up to fourth gear. But but my favorite is water displacing. So speaking of parts sitting, Jace uh, shared with me recently that if if a, if a part is especially rusty before it's blasted um it's going to re-corrode faster than if it weren't can you explain why that is no i can't that that is awesome um um no i i really don't know that that is a good part other than if we just think about and extrapolate it a little bit um if that surface is already active and going back into a corrosion state perhaps you know that's down further into those pores and therefore once again they get wet or rehydrate they, they're going to be more active but again um we'd have to go to a, a scientist for that one because that that is a good question now you got me intrigued i'm gonna look that up later now it's curious isn't it yes yep i mean i can kind of think of how it logically makes sense but then again, I don't know that that's that's scientifically correct. I don't want to say that, but but uh, hey, that and and I can see where that would prove up. I'm thinking back in many experiences that yeah, that is true. So it's it's really interesting to me that Nebraska has its own set of corrosion related challenges. Um, in your time working in this industry, did you travel all over the country? And if so, did you have to adjust your recommendations based on the climate? That's a that's a good question as well. Um, I traveled roughly states, most Midwest, um, but uh, there were different climate changes. Of course, everybody's got the worst humidity and the worst heat and the worst snow and the worst ice and you know wherever you go, there is the worst, of course. And and that's uh, it, the way it, it it seems like it to them anyway. But um, is what I I I seem to say that in the summer with the humidity you're going to have those issues um no matter what i think um it would be probably the different areas where i had specific recommendations of differences actually would become in our third area of corrosion which is parts coming out of my washer that are rusty and that maybe necessarily wasn't due to the weather conditions but probably more the water conditions of the different areas in the different parts of the country. I don't know if that's a good segue to get into the next area or the third area it is, of, yeah. of corrosion. It wasn't planned, but it kind of went kind of smoothly that way. Um, but but probably water, if I'm thinking back, was was definitely more of an issue. And and city water, you know, water. You know what were the buffering elements of it? What was the the alkalinity? Those types of things, hardness, you know, um, that could cause rusting issues and corrosion issues with parts coming out of a washer. Wow, 
So I, it's probably been a minute since you've been to Kayser, but do you have any memory of what Nebraska water is like? Oh, yes. Um, I, th I think he's sitting at about 17 grains and about 350 parts per million in solids. <laughs> but see, I do have a, few, a little bit of memory with me yet. But, but basically, on, on a serious one challenge that we did have with Jace's um, situation, which many uh, custom coders have, especially because you're dealing with different types of parts from all over and different types of metals from all over. Um, but the issue is the water. And so like in, in Kayser's case, um, the water was a little bit low on the M-alkalinity, which is a buffering agent that helps stabilize and hold up the pH of a given solution. So if in this case, if his pH drops um, too low, let's say he needs to run it, it we'll just pick for round numbers, a 2% concentration. And at 2%, the normal pH of that product should run, let's say at 5%, or not 5%, but a five on the pH. Let's say that because he's low on M-alkalinity, and this can be applicable anywhere um, in the country, you can have different buffering agents that you're low on or high on. Um, but let's say that you're low on M-alkalinity, then instead of running that 2% and ending up with a 5 pH, he's still running that 2% concentration, but his pH is now down at a 3. Well, at a three, you're not going to produce either a zirconium. I mean, you can, but most likely you're not going to produce a zirconium or a phosphate coating consistently on very surface active metal, especially blasted. So in that case, um, we had to reformulate the product a little bit so that when we ran at a 2%, and again, I'm just using round numbers, but when we ran at a 2%, we achieved our 5 pH, and again, just round numbers, rather than the three, which was producing rusty parts. The same can be applicable. Now, now Kayser's case is using the, uh, the, the spray system, um, but the same is applicable to a recirculation washer also, um, that the different elements of the water can really affect your pHs and how your chemistry is gonna react with your parts. And then you just need to adjust in some form or fashion to correct that. Okay. So the advice to anyone setting up a powder coating operation anywhere in the country is pay attention to your water source and what it needs. Yes. And, and um, actually work with your pretreatment company um, to test the water and test, you know, the, the three or four different buffering elements and, and to really test and say, okay, where do we want to run the product and where will we run the product? And are we going to be at the right pHs and, and solids levels and those types of things ahead of time? And you can really avoid some problems. Great. What other advice uh, would you give powder coders who really are wanting to perform proper pretreatment on their parts? I th the the biggest thing. Question. Um, I think the biggest thing is to ascertain and define what does it take to pretreat that particular part or those set of parts in a quality manner, you know, meaning defined as, as the customer is required or as you have set up by your standards. But what does it take to do that? 
And then how do we define a system that allows us to duplicate it so we just do it all the time? I call it paint by numbers. Every number one is a yellow, every number two is green, you know, whatever. But so that it's the same and same and same as much as possible. Life happens. We all know that we're going to get enough life happening that it's going to change. But if, if you can take out and minimize the variables, so everything's just the same, whether, you know, Bob, Louie, or Sarah does it, it's always the same, then, then it helps. Then it just makes your life a little less stressful. So did Jace get that from you, or did he have that strong sense of process before you met, do you think? Because he says that kind of he says that kind of thing all the time. Oh no, he he is. I've never seen anyone so process controlled and driven as as uh, Mr. Jace Kayser. No, it, it, I'm impressed, and and I'm tough to impress. Um, no, just just the manner and the detail, and and uh, his obsession with everything having to be perfect. It'll drive him crazy. I'm telling you, he should learn now to slow down a little bit. But but uh, no, it's it's it's. Be- I mean, you can just look at his operation. You look at the way things are done, and and this wasn't a designed plan plug for for Kaiser. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. If anybody's been in his shop, you know what I'm. About. So, so no, I'm impressed by that young man. He does a does a great job. And is a good hard worker, and always honest. I like that. That's hard to find these days. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. But a lot of the stuff that I've learned from pre-treatment has definitely come from. From you, we've only ever really dealt with you as, and, and got help from you as, from a pre-treatment standpoint. The one thing that always sticks in my mind that I remember you always saying when we were first getting started is time, temperature, and concentration. Absolutely, yep. And and by that, I mean you've got some variables in your washing, what, uh, but if you are short, on one or the other, you may have to make it up in another. So always in your analysis, say, okay, what is my time? Meaning what is my contact time with the, the chemistry, whether it's a cleaner or phosphate or zirconium or combination um, or sealer. And what is my contact time with the solution on that part? What is my temperature and what is it supposed to be? It could be too high and can be too low. And then, um, you know, time, temperature, and concentration. What are my concentrations? So, and you may have to compensate back and forth a little bit, um, you know, given what you're trying to remove from the from the substrate. So, most of your experience was kind of in the trenches and and on the floor throughout your whole pre-treatment career. When you would come into any facility and see an issue with corrosion you probably most of the time we're seeing it coming out of a wash bay or out of a washer what's your what were kind of your steps to troubleshoot that um with all your experience i think you probably got it troubleshooted pretty quickly but but let's just say someone who is brand new to powder coating has their own little small wash bay set up and all of a sudden right away um that let's say they have a, a decent chemical um but but nobody really came and showed them how to use it. And no matter what they do, rusty parts are coming out of their wash bay. What are like a few key things that they should check just so they can kind of start to figure out where the problem is? Because uh, there are so many variables that sometimes you, you like for me, I wouldn't necessarily know where to start and if I didn't have uh, the knowledge or information from you. Awesome. Thank you. 
Um, and, and that does occur a thousand times a day across the country, I'm sure, um, in big operations and, and small operations. So that is, a, that is a really good thing to address here, I think, at this point. So if we think of a piece of steel, whether it's blasted or whether it's just coming in in process or, or whatever, um, and we can talk about non-ferrous metals at, at some point too, because you do get white rust, but, but at this point we're, we're looking more at the ferrous metals or the steel metals. Um, and um, if you look at the process, we put, we're talking about rust preventatives and RPs and different things to put on it so they keep it from rusting. So if we take it and put it in a washer, whether it's an alkaline, clean, you know, phosphate zirconium process or a cleaner phosphate combination or a cleaner zirconium combination, basically when we do the cleaning function of it, we are removing the oils, the organics, that which are going to protect that steel from rusting. So now we've just taken that off. So now quickly, we rinse it off, unless it's a cleaner coater, um, but then we rinse it off with water, usually in, in the second stage of the operation or the second step. And then we go to either a, a phosphate or a cleaner phosphate or a zirconium at that point to get the coating. And then we are praying and pointing and pray, spray and pray in, in the paint business, right? Spray and pray. And pray. But um, we are hoping then that that, at that point is creating a conversion coat, whether it's an iron phosphate coat on that side or a zirconium coating on the other side, if it's creating that conversion coat, then that will prevent the flash rusting from coming out of the washer. So if we see parts coming out of the washer, then we go through maybe a rinse step and maybe a seal rinse, depending on the specs and the, and the objectives, of course. But the key is if we are seeing rusty parts coming out. That tells us, number one, we've got the part clean, we've removed the organics, the oils are off, the RPs are off, so that part is nice and clean and ready to accept powder, but oh wait, we didn't create any conversion coat and that's why it's rusty. If it was still oily, it wouldn't be rusty. If we had a good conversion coat on it, it shouldn't be rusty. So. If it's rusty, I got it clean, so I did half of it, but I didn't get the conversion coat put on. So then you jump to what are the different steps of the conversion coat and why am I not creating a conversion coat? Is absence of rust the best indicator that you have created a conversion coat or are there other things to look for? Probably, okay, great question, Ms. Coley. Um, the first thing, when there is the absence of rust, that means one of two things, either there's still oil on it, so it's not rusty, or you've got a good conversion coat. If you wanna know the difference, because one the paint will stick and the other it will not. So the best is just the old fashioned, what's called a water break free test. And you take a, a, a spray bottle of BI water or, or reverse osmosis water. You can use regular water, but it's better to have the lower solids level of the BI or the RO. And after that part is out and it's dry and it looks good and it's ready for paint um, and it's not rusting, you spray that part down wet with full water and see if it beads up like water on a wax car, you still have oils on it, it needs to be rewashed. If it's sheets like that old commercial where you see in the, in the 
you know, in the in the dishwasher where it just sheets down over the glass or whatever. If it just it's called wetting out. If you just sheets down over or wets out over the part and it's all nice and smooth as it runs down, then yes, you've got a good clean part. You've got the organics off. You've got a good conversion coat, whether it's iron phosphate or zirconium, and um, you have no rust and you've got a great part ready to uh, to receive the powder coat. So interesting. So is that a test that you perform at Kaiser, Jace, or are you able to tell just by looking at this point? Um, usually we can tell just by looking if we have a good iron phosphate coating because uh, typically iron phosphate is going to change the color of the substrate. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% clean. You could start building phosphate in some areas of the part, but other parts are dirty. So usually the last stage of our pretreatment process is a rinse, an RO rinse. So in fact, today I was on the shop floor helping. We've been really busy and I was moving carts in and out of the oven. So I was watching them as they were coming out of the wash bay. And I literally was thinking of the saying that Bill just said is like, you don't want it like water on a wax car because it beads up. And that means that you don't have the parts clean enough yet. So that was literally running through my mind all day. I did see a few parts um, that were beating up. Uh, it wasn't every single part. It was random throughout the carts. And so I was saying to myself, obviously, um, the person who's doing the pretreatment maybe forgot to do that one piece or didn't get that one as good. It wasn't like a wholesale problem across everything. Uh, but as I was seeing that, then I was communicating um, with the operator that was doing the pretreatment just saying, hey, you might want to spend a little more time on such and such or, or adjust your pattern just a little bit. Um, so that's definitely a really good test, especially when you're doing a, a zirconium pretreatment. As far as I know, zirconium, you don't really see anything built. Is that correct, Bill? When you're doing zirconium, you don't really see any color change, whereas with phosphate, you see code like blue to iridescent? Yes, that is a, a very good point. You can see a type of darkening or a gray um, or somewhat of a little golding with the zirconium, but but nowhere near. In fact, it's, it's somewhat, sometimes even unnoticeable, um, that of an iron phosphate, where you get the different blues and the rainbows and the iridescence of the different metals. That is correct, yeah. Okay, so yeah, and the, the parts that we were doing today were actually aluminum, uh, and they were getting a zirconium pretreatment, and so it's pretty much impossible to see that, but I was definitely watching for the if water was sheeting off or beating up, uh, it's, I would say it's not something that we do on a regular basis. A lot of the parts that we run through are pretty consistent. We've done them before. We have a pretreatment process established already. So as long as everything is looking similar to normal, we're usually just proceeding. If we do have a new parts coming in or we're just worried with a new run, if, if something's not getting quite clean enough, then we will do that test uh, or since our processes are usually so consistent um, if we start seeing bubbling coming out of the oven with powder or we don't think our adhesion's good then we might test um, but it's not something that we do every single day anytime that uh, Bill was ever around when he was still in the industry he would always want to check that while he was there because that's part of kind of his checklist to make sure that everything is going right. And it's definitely a really good tool. Everybody should uh, always have a bottle of RO or DI water in a little spray bottle because right away 
you can tell if if you're having issues that that's a pretty key indicator i think is there anything else that you like tricks of the trade bill that you kind of had like special rules of thumb or anything that you if you were coming into a shop that you'd never been in before and you were just kind of trying to audit their process having a spray bottle with ro water in it would be one helpful is there any other like quick indicators like smells around the wash bay anything like that i i think i think you touched on one of the key ones um and if if you're having an issue with adhesion or cleanliness or worried about a parts in many cases one of the little tricks that i recommended um and it seemed to work out well was and and you actually use it in in your shop also in in many cases so you'll know what i'm talking about when i get there because we haven't even discussed this ahead of time obviously but um i would actually design in the process in the wash process that at the very end they would take and do a quick rinse simply with RO water and, and a big garden sprayer and just rinse the part if it was not a you know dry in place seal rinse or something. But, but uh, um, at that point, you're lowering the solids level on the part and you're doing as, as normal process of doing that. You're also making sure that every single area and every single part is clean. I wouldn't recommend that if it's not a, a problematic um, part or process, you know, because it, it that does add another step in another process. But it really does make a difference if you want to ensure, like you said, the quality and 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 a trick of the trade. Um, and then because it every every single time you know that the uh, the part clean and water break free. Okay, so if there's people listening to this and they they are powder coaters, they do have some form of pretreatment, uh, but but they're learning a lot listening to this podcast. Is there some key things that you can tell if they're like, man, I, you know, that'd be great um, if I had someone as knowledgeable as Bill to talk to, but I wonder I wonder what I could do to my pretreatment process um, to make it better. This really quickly or or some checkers that I can do to make sure that everything that we're doing is coming out right. So the break free is one. Is there anything else if you were just coming into an operation blind that you would say, hey, just so I know what's going on as a consultant, I got to check this, this, and this. Um, so that way some people at home can go through on their own operations and do that. They may not know it themselves, but you might be able to point them in the right direction. Good point. And let's, and let's start at the back. So let's look at the part just before we paint it. That'll, that'll give us, the first thing I look at is what does the part look like when it comes out of the washer and then also after dry off or when the part is ready for paint. So we look at it and, and Miss Chloe talked about that also a little bit is, is the part rusty or not? And do I have a good, you know, smooth, um, consistent coating, whether it's iron phosphators or conium. And um, what does it look like from there? Because again, if the part is rusty, then I know that I've got it clean, but I don't have a coating. If the part is beating up, then I know that it's not clean. If the part is not rusty and not beating up, I know that it is ready for coating. So if any one of those areas are not 
in check, then the next level is then to go into and say, okay, I'm not getting it clean. What do I need to do to get it clean? And then you look at your times, temperatures, and concentrations. And then you say, what am I looking at? If I'm getting it clean, but it's rusty, then you go to your conversion process and say, what are my variables? Time, temperature, concentration. And then, you know, work forward that way. Okay, that's good. So basically, we want cleaning and then conversion coding in each one of those areas, time, temperature, and concentration. And if you focus on those, you should be able to troubleshoot uh, your own pretreatment process and make sure everything is going good. Do you have any more questions, Chloe? I guess I just, um, this might be a stupid question. So if there's no good answer to it, please tell me. But I just was curious, you've been doing this for so long and powder coating is a relatively new um, type of finishing. I mean, like since the 60s, right? So has there been any evolution in pretreatment technology? Um, and if so, what? And is there anything on the horizon that sort of excites you? Hmm. Well, I, I think, I think that's a, hmm. I, I guess I would look at probably one of the newer markets or new sectors of the industry that I think could be kind of exciting is, is the prospect of powder coating over plastics and woods. Um, and, and they have been making some real strides lately in, in low temp cures and also being able to apply a conductivity source to even plastics to get the charge to get the powder to attract to the plastic. So um, that would open up a whole new niche markets and industries, although it's already being done in, in, in you know, um, many areas, I still think there's a lot more to, uh, to uh, you know, to come out of that, of course. That's great. Well, we super appreciate your time um, and your knowledge and have for years. So thank you so much for being here today. Of fun and it was great to visit with you guys and and uh, um, I think what you're doing is great and uh, and I pray it goes well for you if I can help in any way I'll be glad to do it and and uh, you know I I, I uh, just wish everybody good luck with with what they're doing the projects that they're on because it's it's challenging but it can be really really rewarding you know either you get you get hooked on it and and uh, you know you'll solve it and just go crazy and go pump gas or something but it's 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 exciting to get involved and, and to, to hang on and it's it's like a rodeo that's for sure but it's exciting. Yeah, I would say for all of our listeners, pretreatment is probably the most important part of any type of uh, liquid paint or powder coating process. When I first got started learning about powder coating, I didn't think that pretreatment was that important. Uh, we powder coated for probably in our first month or so. We were powder coating, sometimes pre-treated, sometimes not. And then at some point we got hooked up with Bill and he started showing us what we needed to do. At first, I, I didn't necessarily, I'm pretty hard-headed, so I was I wanted to make sure that I understood everything before I just started doing it. I, I kind of thought to myself, how can we put water on a freshly blasted part and that be good for it? Isn't that going to rust it? But uh, Bill knows his stuff. Uh, pre-treatment does work. Uh, it's very, very key part. If you're in the powder coating industry or or liquid coating industry, you should get excited about pretreatment. You should be getting excited about um, how the parts look after they're pretreated before they're going 
into the spray booths. If you're not, there's a good chance that you might not can be getting them pre-treated well. Uh, iron phosphates look pretty interesting uh, when they're done right. There's the, like Phil was saying, blue, purple, gold, iridescent. Um, so just make sure you're focusing plenty of your time on pre-treatment. There's all kinds of different chemicals out there. Make sure that um, you find a good vendor that just works well with you and find a good sales rep and technical rep uh, like Bill has been to us and utilize their knowledge and just make sure that once you have a process in place that you're taking the time to check over your concentrations, pay attention to the times that you're spending, um, pay attention to the temperature that you're using. And in the long run, that's really, really going to help uh, how your part looks when it's coming out. And then long-term corrosion protection as far as, especially if your parts are going outside, the pretreatment is really going to help because all coatings uh, are somewhat porous. And so eventually the water is going to work its way down through the coating. And then like Bill said before, it's going to hydrate anything that was left on the surface of the metal. And that's when you start having some um, adhesion issues with bubbling and flaking off. And then your, your metal is exposed to the atmosphere. And so then you're going to have rusting if you're talking about ferrous materials or like Bill said, white rust when you're talking about aluminums or sometimes stainless steels. We did have one uh, question that was going to be on my tip of the day, but I think um, we should ask it to Bill because I think that he'll be able to answer it a little bit better than I would. Um, so Chloe, you want to ask Bill what that question was? Absolutely. So this came to us via Facebook from Tim Kirschbaum. Um, and I'll just read what he wrote. He says, a question about powder coating aluminum. I read in some forums that aluminum needs to breathe and that powder coating aluminum doesn't last long term as it will eventually flake off. Besides the zirconium seal rinse, is there anything else that you do to aluminum to get the powder coat to last long term? Yes. The, um, <laughs> oh, about a hundred different directions. That is a good question. Loaded. Um, basically, if we break it down, when when dealing with aluminums, basically in, in real simple terms, and again, remember, I'm just the guy down on the street, um, but basically we want to break the skin of that aluminum and, and open up um, the pores and break that skin so we can get good adhesion. Now, that can be done in some cases with a, with a high alkaline, but then you can go too far and then smut it out. Um, usually it's done with some type of an acid um, that would open up and break the skin. So first, again, organically clean, get the oils and greases off of there, get the organics, but then break the skin. And actually, we need to oxidize and open that up. Now, he brings out another point into another layer, excuse me, of that question where there's another layer, and that is that when we talk about certain aluminums and certain castings and different things that are breathing and that need to actually outgas, um, that's a whole nother situation. Um, but I think what he is referring to is, is, the, uh, is the adhesion factor of, of breaking that skin. That makes sense, thank you. I would say, and that was kind of my similar answer when we replied to that comment. It was that 
as far as I'm concerned, powder coating will definitely stick to aluminum, but you just have to make sure that you pre-treat it the right, right way. And sometimes it's, at least from my standpoint, it's a little more difficult to pre-treat aluminum properly um, compared to steel. Seems like that there's a few more steps and maybe a little less visual on the aluminum side of things. With steel, you can pretty much see if you're getting the iron phosphate pretreatment that you need, whereas aluminum, you're not usually visually seeing with your naked eye the, the etching that's happening, and then there's a conium building up. Would you agree with that, Bill? I do, and you, you brought up a couple of good points that I forgot to bring up earlier, so thank you for reminding me. Um, that when we do break that skin and open that up, hopefully we will see that again, water break free surface. Um, sometimes you can have a water break on a metal that is organically clean, but still water breaks, and that has to do with surface tension. Um, so that is a very important point. And then secondly, um, if, his question is referring more to the outgassing situation. Um, one way that that can be tested if you are having problems with the paint, you know, falling off prematurely, and it's not necessarily an adhesion issue up front, then um, as you've probably done and tested there, Jason, your operation, you can take some of those parts and actually clean them, run them through your cure oven, bake them out and basically outgas them and see if that is the cause of the problem and then um, go back and run it back through and rewash and then recoat and see if that's an issue. Um, but but um, I'm not sure which which area of his his uh, question is, but but that should address both of those areas with both the adhesion and the outgassing to be able to test it. Okay, well, thanks for your, your input on that. I think we were both thinking along the same lines and I just want to echo Chloe thanks for taking the time to to talk with us this afternoon you definitely have a lot of knowledge with pretreatment and corrosion uh, definitely extends beyond anything that I know most of the content that we put out on social media a lot of the the pretreatment stuff has stemmed from um, things that I've learned from Bill I always appreciated that he would take the time to teach so if you have the opportunity to have a, a tactical rep that'll teach you some things and not just talk at you and come in and work on your equipment and change stuff and then just leave and not explain why they did what they did uh, try to find one that will explain it because it's really helpful they can't always be there for you um, especially if you're a small job shop like we are at Kaiser um, they just you know they might be able to come in a few times a year they just can't physically spend a ton of time at small job shops that aren't um, as big of dollar amount customers as like the really huge well-known names that you would know about nationwide. But if you have find a good rep, um, they'll usually pick up the phone for you and, and be able to answer your questions. So just thanks for everything that you've done. Hopefully we can have you on again to maybe get into the specifics of maybe an iron phosphate pretreatment or zirconium pretreatment. Um, we kind of glazed over those slightly today but there is a lot to those especially for for powder coating job shops that don't have a lot of experience in pretreatment um they might think uh, and have some questions about what does it all take to make a good phosphate coating what does it all take to make a good zirconium coating so thank you bill
Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Miss Chloe. That was uh, that was really a lot of fun, and I hope it helps. And and glad to help at any time. Yes. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Anything broke? Anything leaking? Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. When you stay late tonight, we need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated. If we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything?